I'm James Ryan Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You are listening to episode 74. If you missed the pilot episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what we call Mind Discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds on things above. That's the title of the podcast. It comes from Colossians 3.2, where Paul says, set your minds on things above. Setting our minds on good thoughts, on uplifting, encouraging, life-giving, true, biblically-based thoughts from above is not easy. And that's why we do the podcast, to provide for you and for me in each episode a thought from above that you can dwell on and set your heart on and maybe give you some encouragement. You know, the other day, my daughter Hope sent me this little pin from Pinterest about the word eunoia, eunoia. And it's a Greek word. And you know, I love those Greek words. And we talk about metanoia on this podcast, which meta means change. And noia is from the word nous, which means mind. So the word we translate repent quite often in the Bible, when Jesus says repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand, that word metanoia actually means change your mind. But eunoia means good thoughts. Because you, E-U, is the word we use for like euphoric, is a really good feeling, or euphonic is when a sound is great. That's a euphonic sound. So it means good, E-U, but then noia means mind. So good minds, beautiful minds, good thoughts. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's thought from above is this. We're saved by his life. It was 27 years ago this summer that I attended, along with my good friend Jeff Cannon, a conference in Maryland. And it was a conference on discipleship, interestingly enough. And Jeff and I were young. I was a professor at Friends. Jeff was pastor at Chapel Hill. We were just about to start this church, this Methodist church in Wichita. But we went to this conference together. And little did we know, but it was going to absolutely change our lives. Because the conference was about how to understand the gospel. And what I'm going to say today are things that you've probably heard me say before, because I am fairly consistent. I don't have a lot of messages I like to say. I just have a few that I think God's given me, and I kind of give them over and over, variations on a theme. But what I learned, what Jeff and I both learned at this particular conference was a way to understand the gospel. And the first part of it, there's really two main parts, is about the finality of the cross. And I've talked about that on this podcast before. The finality of the cross is the teaching that in Christ we are forgiven forever, past, present, and future. Now, that idea really rocked my world. I'd heard about the cross. I went to seminary. I knew the basic story of Christianity. I'd studied the Bible. But no one had ever put it like that for me. But the teachers of this particular event explained that the finality of the cross meant that Jesus' work on the cross was final, that his death on the cross was sufficient for all people, for all sins, for all time. And this absolutely rocked my world because I had this thought, and we talk a lot about thoughts on this podcast, 
somehow this narrative got in my mind that, yeah, Jesus died for my sins on the cross so that I could go to heaven when I die, but that the sins that I still commit now need some kind of atoning. Needs, I need to get them forgiven somehow. And that particular teaching was the way I understood my relationship with God. So I would sin, and then I would confess it, and I would get forgiven, and then I would sin again and confess and get forgiven. And this went on and on. But here I was at this conference, hearing this message that in Christ we are forgiven forever. And I thought, whoa, are you kidding me? And one of the teachers said that Jesus died for our past sins and our present sins, and I could kind of go there. But when he said, he died for the sins you haven't committed That was like the whoa moment for me. I thought, holy cow, this is unbelievable. And so I began to study the scriptures. And sure enough, it was consistent with the teachings of the New Testament, particularly in several of Paul's epistles where that is made absolutely clear. And I'll talk about some of those verses. But if you just have that teaching alone, this idea that we are forgiven, past, present, and future, by the cross, which I believe is true. But if you stop there, you might end up thinking that, well, we can just sin all we want because, you know, Jesus, he paid for all of them. And that notion is actually something that some of the early Christians thought. And we know this because in Romans 5, toward the end of Romans 5, Paul raises the rhetorical question, can we continue in sin in order that grace may abound. And that's, you know, I'm sure that Paul had heard that from people who went, hey, 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 Paul, what you're saying about the cross, I mean, can we just sin? I mean, is this a license to sin all we want? So Paul raises that question at the end of Romans 5, and then he says in Romans 6, by no means. And he says meganoita in the Greek, which is a really harsh way of saying, uh, the best I can do on this podcast is heck no. (laughs) It's Paul's way of saying, That's absurd. And then he explains why. And he does so in Romans 6, in such a powerful passage. The epistle to the Romans, chapter 6, is unparalleled, really. 6 and 7 and 8 are just unbelievable. But he explains in chapter 6 why we can't go there, why we can't say, oh, yeah, no, I've been forgiven by Christ forever. But the reason that I can't just go on sinning in order that grace would abound is because of who I am. Paul explains that those who are Christ followers have died and risen with him, and we're all new people. So the second part of this gospel message, the first being the finality of the cross, in Christ we are forgiven forever, the second part is the reality of the resurrection. Because you can't understand the finality of the cross unless you also understand the reality of the resurrection. And that is that we have been raised with Christ and we're all new people. And that simply changes everything. Yes, Jesus established our forgiveness on the cross. I mean, one of the things that was in this three ring binder, this notebook, and it was, it was in a box quote, you know, because box quotes are when you really want to pay attention. And one of the box quotes that is in the notebook several times, actually, it says this, atonement covered our sins, Christ took away our sins. Now, the allusion there is to the Old Testament where the blood of the bulls and goats was the atoning sacrifice. It covered sins, 
But then we would sin again and we would need more atonement, more blood from the bulls and the goats. And the bulls and the goats didn't like it. But nonetheless, that was the arrangement, right? But Christ took away our sins. And we know this from John the Baptist when he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But again, that's only part of it. That's the first part, and it's so crucial. But then we move to the second part where Jesus fills us with the Spirit through his resurrection. Because without the resurrection, we would merely be forgiven dead people. Forgiven, but spiritually dead people. We're not made alive in Christ until that second work. That's what the resurrection's about. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Those are powerful words, those last four words, saved by his life, Romans 5.10. So salvation, therefore, is not merely getting into heaven when you die because your sins were paid for. It's being made alive together with Christ, and therefore, it's getting heaven into us now. That's the difference. It's all an act of grace. I've defined on this podcast that word grace that the good brother Dr. Willard taught me, and that is that grace is God's action in our lives. Grace is God's act for us. And grace takes many forms. But a primary way that we experience grace is certainly in the reconciliation and the death of Jesus, but even also in the resurrection of Jesus. Ephesians 5.10 says, Even when we were dead through our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 5.10, we're made alive together with Christ by grace. See, that's what grace does. Grace is God acting for us in ways we can't do ourselves. And that's why it's such good news. That's why grace is so amazing. And we have a hymn to show for it, right? Amazing grace. It's God doing for us what we couldn't do. What couldn't we do? Get our sins forgiven forever. I mean, if I have to constantly atone for my sins or get my sins forgiven through confession or penance or some something, man, I'm never going to stop. I'll never get off that treadmill. But Christ has done that work. I remember I was having dinner with Dallas not too long after I had been at this conference. For the next several months, I just was just studying the Bible like crazy. And I was out in Southern California. Dallas and I were doing this class together. And over dinner one night, I just couldn't contain it. I was just talking about what I'm talking about now, the finality of the cross, the reality of the resurrection. And in the midst of that, I am just so ecstatic. And I stopped and said, this is true, right? Isn't this true? And I remember Dallas just saying, well, yes, James, it's a beautiful thing that God is no longer dealing with us on the basis of our sins. And I went, whoa, 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 wait, what'd you say? He said, it's a beautiful thing that God is no longer dealing with us on the basis of our sins. 
And I remember I grabbed a napkin and I started just writing that phrase down. That's another way of understanding it. See, God is not dealing with us on the basis of our sins. Amen. Isn't that fantastic? But that's not it. You know, that's not the only part of the grace or the good news or the gospel. It's also that we have been raised with Christ. It's all grace. We don't do anything to earn it or to deserve it. We just reach out and accept the gift. And even that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we we don't even say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, Paul said. So God is constantly drawing us in. And when we receive the gift, we take this gift that's already been given. See, an, an unbeliever Someone you know, for example, who doesn't have any faith in God. They've been forgiven. They just don't know it. They haven't been made alive with Christ because they haven't stepped into that resurrection life. So that's why when we talk about the gospel, it is about a message of grace. The finality of the cross. The reality of the resurrection. But even then, we don't stop there. I kind of feel like I'm a salesman selling you knives or something. But wait, there's more. Because grace goes on and on. See, we not only need a message of grace, but we need a method of discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus. So we have that message of grace, forgiven forever. And then the reality of the resurrection, made alive with Christ. All new creatures. We're these new beings I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights, as we like to say. And then every single day, I am leaning into the grace of God. Every day, through the practices that are a part of spiritual formation, prayer, solitude, silence, study of the scripture, reading the devotional classics, you name it, the list goes on and on. But in every one of those, we are engaging in the means of grace. There's a good phrase from John Wesley, means of grace. Because our spiritual formation in Christ involves using these means of grace. Wesley also used channels of grace. Maybe that's not the best one, but it's not bad. It's the idea that I am connecting with God's grace, God's action. So when I, for example, the other day, I was uh, reading one of the Psalms, and I was absolutely moved by it. I mean, I really felt the Spirit speaking to me, teaching me. I was connecting with God. That's God's grace. Now, I had to open the scriptures. I had to do some things, but I used that means, but then God stepped in and did it. And that goes back to Richard Foster's classic definition of the spiritual disciplines. They place us before God so that God can transform us. So grace then is uh, something that we receive in the midst of that. So it's all grace, right? Finality of the cross, grace. Reality of the resurrection, grace. Every time we step into, we go to a worship service and God speaks to us. Grace, it goes on and on. One of the things that happened to me, as well as to my friend Jeff Cannon, when we came back from this conference was, the first thing we thought was, is is this weird? Is this wrong? Is this crazy? Is it scriptural? I mean, we really were wondering. And as we began to study, as I said, it became more and more clear that this was absolutely scripturally based. This was right there. It had been staring us in the face. So one of the questions that I had was, has anyone else in the history of the church, you know, approached the gospel or the Christian life in this way? 
And, you know, I'm United Methodist and I was uh, schooled in John Wesley. I started reading his, his works when I was an undergraduate student. I read him in graduate school. I studied Wesley a lot. I got, you know, Wesley's entire corpus of his writings and sermons. Um, and so I went back to Wesley and lo and behold, I came across what is thought of as like the most famous moment in Methodist history in some ways, which was John Wesley's experience May 24th, 1738, and we know this is Wesley's heart strangely warmed experience. But the backstory is this. Wesley, he grew up uh, as a very pious Anglican. Uh, he was a part of the Holy Club at Oxford, a group of young men that included George Whitfield and his brother Charles. And these guys were very serious about the Christian life. I mean, they they their rule of life was astounding. I mean... Every week they were studying the scriptures and praying and fasting and serving the poor and on and on. And um, Wesley came from that experience and he was just, he was a great legalist, to be honest. I mean, and he would later sort of explain it that way. But he went as a missionary to America and his time in Georgia was terrible. Uh, he, he got back on the ship to go back to England and it was a, it was a dismal failure, his entire experience. And that's a whole story in itself, what happened to Wesley in America, but he's on his way back to England, his tail's between his legs. It's a horrible experience. But he's with these group of people called the Moravian Brethren. They were a German group of people, very dedicated, very pious, uh, even mystical kind of group. And Wesley was amazed at their faith, at the confidence and joy that they had. In fact, at one point, the ship was under a great storm and it was maybe going to capsize and Wesley's clinging to the mast and, and the Moravian brethren are singing hymns. And so Wesley was like, what is with you guys? You know, what, what makes you guys tick? So he gets back to England and he stays in contact with them. And Peter Burler was one of the main leaders. And um, so he got invited to go to a Moravian brethren meeting, kind of a Bible study uh, on Aldersgate street in London. And so on May 24, 1738, he went and Peter Burler was reading uh, Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, his commentary. So, I mean, it's not a fantastic piece. It's like not, you read it and it's, oh, it's great. It's Luther's good stuff, but it isn't like earth shattering. But here's the point. Wesley went to that meeting and God had really been working on his heart. And somehow in the midst of it, he understood the finality of the cross. He understood it in a whole new way because he writes, and this is the famous part of his journal, May 24, 1738. Wesley writes, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society that those are the names of the groups, these gatherings in Aldersgate street, about a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, this was an important experience for John because the legalism, all the things he was trying to do to get God to love him and forgive him and all that, it was over. He had experienced what I've been describing as the finality of the cross and the reality of the resurrection because he talks about being saved from the law of sin and death, that he was an all-new creature. What's kind of cool about the story is that his brother Charles was having the same kind of experience 
although their journey was very different, at almost exactly the same time. So the two of them got together, and John was like, Chuck, guess what happened to me? And he's like, John, guess what happened to me? And they began talking about this. And from that, of course, came Wesley's great preaching and Charles' great hymn writing. He wrote like 6,000 hymns, many that you know. So we have to have this gospel right. And you know you got it when you're just kind of bouncing off the ceiling going, this is great news, right? This is amazing grace, what God has done for me. And when we step into it, even John Newton, you know, the, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, he was a slave trader and he was just filled with guilt, what he had participated in. But when he discovered this message that I'm describing today, that's when he wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Or Horatio Spafford, who wrote, It is well with my soul. And that second verse, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. He's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. See, it's that message of grace. It's the finality of the cross. It's the reality of the resurrection. It's stepping into this. And then engaging in the means of grace, that's the method of discipleship. And that's what this is all about. This life of apprenticeship to Jesus is about that. Jesus said in John 10.10, one of the most important verses, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I came that you would have life and have it abundantly. Not just merely mope around and get through the day, but be, as St. Augustine said, an alleluia from head to toe. My sins, even mine, he has forgiven. And my heart was strangely warmed, Wesley said. That is what Jesus was describing about abundant life. And it's the whole life. Not long ago, I came across a quote by Eugene Peterson. I love Eugene's writings. I was blessed to meet him a couple of times. Fantastic person. And I encourage you to read anything by Eugene Peterson. But in the book, The Contemplative Pastor, one of his last books, uh, he writes this, Christian spirituality means living in the mature wholeness of the gospel. It means taking all the elements of your life, children, spouse, job, weather, possessions, relationships, and experiencing them as acts of faith. Oh, there's so much there. But what he's getting at is our spiritual lives aren't just about our religious side. It's not just the, well, that's my, that's my church side of my life, right? And then there's the rest of me. No, he's saying Christian spirituality means taking all the elements of our life, the way I'm a parent, the way I'm a, um, a spouse, the way I deal with my wife, my marriage, my job, how I am in my job is influenced by who I am in Christ. How I deal with the weather, I think it's funny he threw that in there, um, because sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm mad about the weather. Well, maybe I should just rejoice in it. My possessions, everything, relationships, everything is influenced by this reality of the resurrection, that I've been saved by his life, reconciled by his death, but saved by his life. And that's who we are. We are all new people. We are eighth-day people, I often say, right? Because the early church 
understood the calendar, the Jewish calendar, the, the seventh day, Saturday, right? So Jesus died on the sixth day, Friday. He descended on Saturday. We talk about Holy Saturday. But he rose on Sunday, which would have been in the Jewish calendar, the first day of the week. But the early Christians said, no, the whole universe is different now because he rose from the dead. And so Sunday became the eighth day, a whole new day. We are eighth day people. We are all new people who live in that reality. That's why as Christ followers, we say, and you hear it a lot on this podcast, I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. That's the life we've been saved by his life, to live that kind of life, to know our value, our sacred worth, and also the safety of living with him in that unshakable kingdom of God. That's what it means to be saved by his life. I hope you join me next week for episode 75. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. Things above.